You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Thank you so much for that warm welcome on a very warm day. <laughs> um, grateful uh, to my colleague for those kind and gracious words. I am humbled every time I get the opportunity to share from God's word because I recognize, first of all, that it's not my word, it's not our word, it's God's word. So I come to it with a reverence and I come to it with an expectation because it is God's word. As every time I get an invitation to speak, it's a process of weeks and months of just asking the Lord, what is it that you want to say to us? And I'm reminded daily in that process that God's word is fresh. <laughs> it's always new. While what we find in the biblical text informs us, God is daily speaking with us as we encounter him. So this morning, I want to engage the theme of the centrality of Jesus Christ for humanity. What does it mean for Jesus Christ to be the center of our lives? That's a much heard about phrase. And for centuries, Christians all over the world have been working, have embarked on this mission of living out the centrality of Jesus Christ. So here are some thoughts, and I hope that they will help you as you're wrestling with your own formation to have Jesus Christ as your Savior. The centrality of Jesus Christ does not depend on us. We can all breathe. It does not depend on our experiences of him, and nor does it depend on our knowledge of him. Our sins, our poverties of every kind, I have discovered there's not just physical poverty, but there is emotional poverty, there is spiritual poverty that is at play here in our human experience. So it's not just the physical poverty, but it's the poverty of the mind and the heart as well. So our sins, our poverties of various kinds, our fears, our failures, our anxieties don't define the centrality of Jesus Christ. And that in itself is not just a powerful thought, but a liberating thought. Because my experiences do not inform the centrality of Jesus Christ. They do not diminish who Jesus Christ is. The centrality of Jesus Christ is informed fully by the nature of who he is. Paul is consistently trying to tell us throughout the episodes found in the New Testament about this centrality of Jesus Christ. The centrality of Christ is his very nature and very essence. To be central, to be in all, to be above all, to be through all is Jesus. That is his nature and that is his essence. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, and in Romans, specifically in chapter 11 and verse 36, Paul says this to us, 
All things have been placed in subjection under his authority. And he has made him, he, as in God the Father, has made Jesus Christ head over all things. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Thus, this person of Jesus Christ, son of the living God, can neither be dismissed nor relegated to one particular area of our lives. This was an important discovery in my own journey, that neither can I dismiss Jesus Christ, ignore him, nor can I relegate him just to one particular area of my life. All things, Paul says, are under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, this may make some of us uneasy, to be under the authority. That very word itself may send a lot of reminders of experiences that we may have had that are not helpful for us to understand the purpose and the place of authority. So this morning, what I want to do is let's consider the centrality of Jesus Christ and what it means for Jesus to be at the center of our lives. The authority of Jesus Christ is unlike the authority we may have come to experience. The authority we have experienced in our world often, if not always, evokes fear. But what I have discovered and still discovering, that the authority of this Jesus Christ, the supreme being, evokes a reverence. And that is very closely connected to fear. <laughs> but scholars in their writings have disclosed for our learning that fear also has closely embedded in it a sense of reverence, a sense of respect. Not something that we need to be afraid of, but something and someone we need to be in awe of. The authority of Jesus Christ should evoke in us a posture of reverence because we come to realize his preeminence, his supreme nature, as we grow in relationship with him every day. As I was working through this message, I kept hearing this is a process. We don't just come to it overnight. This is a process. It takes time, relationship with Jesus Christ, just like relationships with each other or any relationship that you may have engaged in within your family, within your communities, within your friends' circles. We're also told in the scripture that the authority Jesus Christ has is to yield our good. That is amazing that this person of Jesus Christ, who is the supreme of all persons, uses his authority to yield our good. In John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, which many of us probably learned in churches growing up as little kids, but oftentimes we recite and memorize John 3.16 and don't often go all the way to John 3.17. So let me, let me read that for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That is you and me and all of us. God did not send Jesus Christ to condemn this creation, but God sent Jesus Christ into the world to save the world through him. Can you fathom that? (laughs) That the God of this creation sends his one and only son to redeem all of creation. And I believe that we're living in that process. We join it at different times in history, but we are a part of God's redeeming act very in this very moment, in this very time. We work so hard to keep Jesus Christ out of certain areas of our life. Now that was a learning curve for me when I began my journey in this part of the world. I did not understand what it meant to relegate certain areas of our life to Jesus Christ and not our whole. And so I am still discovering and still processing and still trying to understand the fact that we work hard to keep Jesus out of certain areas of our life. But the reality is that there is no single area of our lives that is outside of the reach and the realm of Jesus Christ. We may fool ourselves into thinking that. And when I, when I came upon that thought, I thought to myself, the best example is when you have injured yourself. Whether the injury is in your hand or in your knees, your legs, any part of your body, your entire body feels it. You experience the pain. So how is it possible that we can relegate only certain areas of our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ and not the rest. When our very physical self experiences pain in its entirety, even if it's located to one particular area. You know, Jesus Christ is all-knowing. He is all-powerful, and he is ever-present. We may think we can put Jesus in a box, or compartmentalize our lives in such a way that we give him access and authority over one area and we try to run the rest of our lives, thinking we are in charge. I didn't say we're responsible. Being in charge and being responsible are two different things. When in fact, that does not seem to work. It doesn't seem to work when we try to run our lives on our own understanding. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, the author informs us that it is not by power and it's not by might, but it is by the Spirit of the Lord that we are empowered daily to live our lives in the fullest way intended. I want to borrow from one of our scholars, Karl Barth, In his classic work, he writes, in his classic work titled Church Dogmatics, Barth tells us, tell me how it stands with your Christology, and I will tell you who you are. (laughs) Tell me how it stands with your Christology, and I will tell you who you are. What we believe about who Jesus Christ is says more about us. Let's lean into those words. What we think about who Jesus Christ is says more about us than it does about the centrality of who Jesus Christ is. I really want us to grasp that because in a world of crowdedness, we often think that our experiences 
reflect or determine or tell us who Jesus is. So let's turn that around. And let's hold on to these words from Barth. Tell me how it stands with your Christology, and I shall tell you who you are. What we believe about who Jesus is says more about us than it does about who Jesus Christ is really and fully. Although in our human journey we only know in part, we will then know in full in eternal life. Throughout the scriptures, the centrality of Jesus Christ is reflected upon in significant and unimaginable ways. Three instances for us to consider this morning. First, the centrality of Jesus Christ is made known to us by the fact that Jesus sees us. In Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, we find the story of the tax collector, Zacchaeus. And I remember as a little kid learning his story through a song. Zacchaeus was a very little man. And what does Zacchaeus do? He runs up on a sycamore tree. Why does he get up on that tree? Because he wanted to see this Jesus Christ. This tax collector, why would he be interested in Jesus Christ? <laughs> Well, apparently he had heard about the centrality. He had heard about the power and the significance of the person of Jesus Christ and what he does and chooses to do for us. I don't want us to be just in that part of Zacchaeus' story. In a world when we don't feel seen, Jesus shows us that he sees us. So I want to challenge us and invite us to ask Jesus, show me yourself. He's not afraid. In fact, several months ago on Mother's uh, Day, I was preaching at, preaching at a church in Lexington, and just in the middle of service, it dropped on my head that oftentimes we as human beings, mere mortals, want to meet Jesus Christ on our terms. And it dawned on me that Jesus is okay with that. <laughs> but what he's not okay is after he meets us, he's not going to leave us as he found us. Now that's another sermon for another day. But, but I want to remind us that the centrality of Jesus Christ is seen in his very nature because he sees you and he sees me. And because Jesus saw Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus saw Jesus, what happens? He confesses. He owns up and he says, I will give back four times more because he had wrongly taken from the people. Jesus protects. So Jesus not only sees, but he protects. Jesus protects the honor of one who many considered beyond salvation. So in John chapter 8, Jesus protects the dignity of a woman caught in adultery. In verse 7 of that very chapter, John 8, Jesus says, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. At this saying of Jesus Christ, the crowd started to go away. And in verse 11, Jesus says to this woman caught in adultery, Neither do I condemn you. The sin, perhaps, of the biggest kind. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Let's not just hang on to those words. This is significantly important. Jesus says to this woman, go now and leave your life of sin. 
So Jesus doesn't protect her so that she could continue in her sin, but Jesus protects her because Jesus wants her to experience the fullness of life. Are you getting the point (laughs) that Jesus sees us, that Jesus protects us, but he has an ask of us? You've heard it in Zacchaeus' story. You've heard it in the woman's story in John chapter 8. Jesus silences a crowd that is name-calling in a time when we label each other. We have so many labels, there are no pages left to write them all down. As a sociologist, I'm always fascinated. As an anthropologist, I'm always fascinated at how we classify ourselves, how we identify who we are, how we identify who the other is. You probably have labels for me, and I probably have labels for you. But the invitation through this particular powerful narrative is to get rid of those labels and recognize the dignity, the God-given dignity that he has given to you and to me and to all of us that walk this earth. So let us consider what Jesus did for this woman and challenge ourselves to do likewise. In his sermon, John Wesley, The Duty of Constant Communion, writes, all men approve of this. And when Wesley is saying all men approve of this, basically Wesley is saying that all of humanity, all of God's people, men and women, approve of the fact that we ought to love one another as God loved us. But do all men practice it? And I'm still asking that question even today, right? So this question remains relevant for us even in our time. How do we, by the empowering of the Holy Spirit, learn to love one another? In John 11, verse 35, we find these words. Perhaps many of us know them as the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept when Jesus saw Mary weeping along with the others when her brother Lazarus had died. Now, why did Mary weep? Because she loved her brother. He was her kith and her kin. Regardless of what kind of a family relationship they all may have lived through. Now, we find in verse 33 of John 11 that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and he was troubled. So not only does Jesus see, not only does Jesus protect, but Jesus weeps with us. Can you imagine a God who does this for us, for you, for me? Jesus not only understands our pain, but he empathizes with us, inviting us into healing and restoration. Proximity has become a new concept and a pretty demanding reality that unless we live in proximity with each other, we cannot empathize with each other. I didn't know that, (laughs) but I am discovering that unless we're in proximity, being proximal to each other allows us to get a concrete sense of what a person might be living through. So let's start seeing Let's start protecting and let's start empathizing. Not because of the sights we take, but because we are all God's imago Dei. Jesus Christ wants to invite us into healing and restoration. Jesus does not want to leave us in our pain, but he accompanies us 
into healing. The centrality of Jesus is essential for our healing from brokenness to wholeness, from darkness to light, from suffering to healing. And these are very broad words for some very finite and particular experiences that we each have in all of these areas. We are all in some way broken, in need of wholeness. We are all in some way in darkness and we need light. We're all in some sort of suffering and we need healing and comfort. For many of us, Jesus is waiting for our yes. There are some of us perhaps right here and right now that may have not said yes or even engaged this Jesus Christ. I invite you to engage with this person of Jesus Christ. So there's some of us that Jesus is waiting for our yes, but there are others of us that Jesus wants us to open all of our lives to him. All of our lives, not just this hurt, because yeah, it's not that bad. <laughs> but every kind of hurt, every kind of pain, the worst of the worst, Jesus is interested. Not only is he interested, but he is able to do something about it. And oh, I wish I had the time to tell you what Jesus has done for me. Oh, how I wish. But I hope you get through these words some sense that this person of Jesus Christ is worthy of our engagement. If not now, I hope tomorrow. If not today, I hope sometime in your lifetime you will engage this person of Jesus Christ. Today, in our lifetime, we are given the opportunity to experience God's goodness in God's way. We've been trying to experience God's goodness in our way. God wants us to experience his goodness in his way. And we have been experiencing that for a long time. God in Jesus Christ has only one condition. All of us for all of him. All of us for all of him. The malfunction, I borrowed this from Miroslav Wolf, a very dear friend and theologian colleague, who says that our orthopraxy, or if we understand that by our acts of mercy, derived largely by a broken humanity's actions and inactions, have proven to be dangerous for us. Our orthopraxy. The practice of our faith has proven to be largely dangerous for us. There is a caution there, an invitation to align our orthopraxy with what we believe, which is our orthodoxy. May we find the courage to look within and see where Jesus has not been invited in our very lives. For Christ to be the center of our lives means that he informs all of it. In Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, this Paul that went from being a persecutor to being the greatest champion of God's word says that he brings his whole self under this authority of Jesus Christ. Sounds like Paul must have done this because he must have experienced liberation of some kind. And it's an invitation for us to consider Paul has brought his whole self 
And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, he says, take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, all of us for all of him. In conclusion, I want to share these important words from a German theologian, Wolfhard Pannenberg. Pannenberg warns us against the danger of excluding God. And I hope that we're realizing it even now. The danger of excluding God. God as central to us. Jesus, the centrality for humanity. He warns us against being overly concerned about ourselves to the degree that we exclude God by narrowly focusing on the question of human salvation. We have undoubtedly forgotten in great measure that the goodness of God and not human religious experience must have first place. Regardless of who we are, just as we are, we ought to focus more on the goodness of God than our experiences, merely our experiences of him. Our place in this world is in relation to who God is first, not simply in relation to each other. We are to be with each other as we are in relationship with Jesus Christ. In Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, we hear these words, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. So in conclusion, if I could deposit this thought with you as you go into your weekend, that our limitations don't inform Christ's centrality. Our limitations don't. Our limitations are an opportunity for God to do his best work in us. And I hope you will engage that invitation. There are many people in my life that have shown me what it means to have Jesus Christ at the center of it. And the very first of these persons are my parents, my mom and my dad. And again, I wish I had time to tell you the stories. Up to this day, they always remind me, ask God first. So it's my parents and many others that I could list, but I invite you to think of those people that demonstrate for you a life that is marked by the centrality of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful God, we know that you are for our good, and we need a reminder daily that you are good. You are merciful, and you are just. Will you continue to allow us an encounter with you as we walk in these days where we have seen your glory and we have known and we have heard of your majesty? Lord, do for some of us, if not all of us, do for us what you do. Set us free from that which holds us captive. For there are many things that have become central to our lives that do not belong there. The centrality of our life is in you because you are the center. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Amen.